PitchShot Money is brought to you by Interactive Brokers. Designed for active traders and sophisticated investors, Interactive Brokers offers trading assets in 150 markets with 27 different currencies. Interactive Brokers also charges USD margin loan rates from 5.83% to 6.83%. They've also got the ability to trade stocks, bonds, futures, options, commodities, and more, all from a single unified platform. Brett and I use Interactive Brokers ourselves, and I honestly have to say that if you spend a considerable amount of time managing your investments, if you're spanning the globe looking for new stocks, I highly recommend using Interactive Brokers as your platform of choice. Restrictions apply, but for more information, visit ibkr.com, member SIPC, open an account with IBKR today. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan, Brett, or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. This is the Investing Power Hour number 91 on Chit Chat Money. Welcome into the show, everyone. I like to ramble a little bit as we get started because I don't know exactly when the live stream actually begins. But again, welcome into Chit Chat Money. We're doing our special year-end power hour, and we're trying to get a little bit of an Ask Us Anything show, although sometimes these shows turn into that anyway. So we have a couple of questions we want to hit. Uh, thank you to the few who asked some fun questions here. I think we're going to have a great show. I'm joined, as always, by Ryan Henderson. Ryan, how are we feeling after the holiday season? We're in limbo period in between Christmas and New Year's here in the United States. Yeah, first of all, happy holidays to all the listeners and to you, Brett. We, It's kind of like that dead week in financial markets where it doesn't seem like there's any news, no companies report. There's very little going on and kind of a time for everyone to relax. So we are doing, like you said, our year end shows. This will be released on, it'll be, I believe it'll be the last day of the year. I believe this will be coming out 31st on, on podcast form. If you're listening on YouTube, this is coming out on a Thursday. So before that, but yeah, we're doing an ask us anything, which, uh, I Sometimes I, I don't know if this is like a problem people will always face, but I consistently feel underqualified to do an ask me anything. Like I don't have the answers, but that's that's okay. We've got oh, some yeah. questions. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't have to pretend to be any sort of experts over here. We're learning part of our show is we try to learn along with any sort of listeners that we have, whether you're more of an advanced investor or someone just starting out. And yeah, we're not going to pretend to just give advice to everyone, but we're just going to give our opinion maybe, or if anyone has any sort of insights or wants any behind the scenes look, this is the time to do it. I will say the next episode after this is going to be our New Year's. We have some changes coming, some slight changes coming for 2024, and that'll be coming out on Wednesday. Uh, we, you know, little teaser there. We are changing one of the dates that we release our episodes and we're going to do some form of 2024 predictions ish, but we don't want to make it cliche as that is a very popular thing to do. So yeah, I think that really gets right into it. Thank you to everyone that gave the reviews on Apple podcasts uh, for the questions here. And if you enjoy these, Please, the best way to thank us is to give us a review on either Spotify or Apple. Ryan, you have something to add before we get started? A little foreshadowing here for our New Year's episode. I believe, and I haven't verified this, I believe all my New Year's predictions last year came true. Ooh, well, little tease. Well, maybe one of yours inflation adjusted. Yes. What's wrong? I honestly can't even remember the the, the takes, housing but... one, the housing one. And I can't remember if yours was new housing or all home prices because those had a big difference in 2023. But I guess we'll figure it out next week. We're going to give that up that report card. Mine, one of mine, 
it's one of them I bet that a stock was going to go down a lot and one I bet that a stock was going to go up a lot and they're both in the magnificent seven so you can tell which one I got more correct than the others but let's roll right into it we should probably hit this first one uh to uh, the priority ones on Apple Podcasts. I think, I think that's it, Ryan. I guess we'll cover any sort of housekeeping items on that special kind of launch for 2024 show. So this is from Pharmacy Joe. Really appreciate the review putting it in on Apple Podcasts uh, for the question here. He's got a couple, so maybe we'll divide it up, but I'll read it all out at the start. What do you do when you are fully invested and a great company that you had planned to buy one day falls below your desired buy price? Where do you raise cash from? Sell for your worst idea. Sell a percent of everything equally. Use margin to establish the position and pay that back with dividends from your other investments. And these are all questions. So I think it's essentially, and he was kind of giving us a bunch of options here. If you're fully invested and something falls on your watch list, say something that we were watching this year was Adyen. And when it fell 50%, that's when you might want to kind of do a little bit of investigative work and kind of get looking more at the research you did in the past and think of, if you think, okay, is this, this, I think this is a good buy now. Well, what do I do? Do I go on margin? I'm already hundred percent invested. Ryan, since I asked the question, why don't you go first? I'm sure we have similar opinions, but probably slightly different too. Yeah. I mean, there are, there's a lot of ways to go about it. I would say for starters, I never use margin. And I would like, I, I don't see what the attractiveness is usually about margin, um, unless you're doing some sort of a constrained strategy that where you kind of have put limitations on your upside and downside. So, you know, a lot of long short funds implement it, they use margin, that kind of thing. But for the average person, if you're just talking about buying a stock when it comes down, Using margin to do so, I, I think it's a really bad idea. First of all, you are going to have to pay interest on it. And there's no guarantees that just because it got below your butt. I mean, our buy prices are arbitrary. They're, they're, it doesn't, the stock doesn't care what your target price was. So it could continue to come down. I mean, these are, this is a stock market. It's random, especially in the short term. So I, I would veer a ways away from using margin. Typically, it really kind of depends what account it's been in. So in when we were running the fund, which we are no longer running the fund, this was a big issue and it was something that came up a lot. And I'm glad you I'm glad Pharmacy Joe asked the question. We would constantly have to sell our remaining stocks in the portfolio, whether it was trimming them down or selling entire positions just to get into one. Frankly, we were, what is it? Cutting the flowers to water the weeds on, on a number of occasions. So that was kind of frustrating. And typically what we do, I it varied, but I think it was usually trimming, trimming stocks that we thought were kind of uh, highest on the highest on their valuations, or maybe it was ones that where we had huge chunks of the portfolio in. But in my personal account, and I guess just for context, the reason it's hard to do that in a fund, the reason it's hard to just add new money in is because you have to go out and raise capital. It's not like you don't have a consistent income stream that's just pouring into your investment account. So, um, But in my Roth IRA, in my personal investments, I generally tend to hold cash for a little bit until I see an idea pop up. And then if nothing pops up, then I'll add it to something I already have. It's a lot easier to, I think, just transfer new cash. That's usually the best solution to the problem. And so I'm always kind of holding some cash. Typically it's more in my bank account than like holding it in my investment account. If it's in my investment account, it's probably invested in something. Um, but if I really see something get go down, I, I, I tend to just, transfer cash instead of trying to sell something at least in my personal yeah that makes sense and you did talk about some maybe mistakes we made when trying to find in a hundred percent invested portfolio how to add something you think is an extremely good idea one thing we did that was i think smart 
and I'm going to keep doing, but on a less regulated basis, is force ranking all of my portfolio at an existing time period. So we would do this once every two weeks, but I think you don't necessarily need to do this that frequently as an individual investor. I think once you get another idea, maybe you can do the research on it. And then when you say, okay, I think this is a good idea, you force rank all your existing holdings. You could just do it as a, if you have 10, you could just rank them one through 10 and spend a little bit of time doing this. Might take you 20 minutes or something like that. Maybe get a little bit of an update on all the companies you own. Yes, if you own a ton of companies, well, this is going to be different. But I think we're speaking to the the audience that is in a similar boat as ours, trying to own 15 to 20 companies, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. And then if you have the one that's on the lowest in your rankings, you compare that to the one you want to buy. And I think if there's a huge difference in, and it's not necessarily valuation, obviously that plays you know, a case here, it's more of, okay, going forward, if I didn't own either of these, is there a huge difference in what one I think is much more attractive? And if the one that you don't own, you think is like, there's a big difference in the risk reward or how attractive you think it is at that price, then I think you, you switch it in. But you want to have some sort of barriers or you want to add a little bit of friction to yourself so you don't start over trading. And it doesn't, if something you think is extremely even, but you give a slight nod to the new stock, I don't know if it means that you should sell the old one. Maybe you can, I don't know. It, it, it's it's kind of an art, more art, more art than science, but it's, and I think it's more personal. Like, okay, what works well for you? For me, in my personal account, I tend to, and I think a lot of people can relate to this because most people listening to this are probably have their own personal account, even if they work in the professional, uh, you know, professionally on the investing side. When I add for me a couple hundred bucks, you know, a month to my account, I go, okay, what do I think is the best idea right now? And, I, and I'm going to buy it. I think that's the best way to do things. And if you have a new idea as an individual, I, I don't think it's the end of the world to be patient and say, okay, I'm going to have income coming in this year. Maybe if I already have a fully invested portfolio, say it's $100,000, and then I have 10000 in savings coming in, I can put that all this one stock I think is cheap. And if it's cheap the whole year, okay, then you've put, built out the full position there. Okay, we want to take another pause today to talk about our friends, Interactive Brokers, otherwise known as IBKR. We love Interactive Brokers. Ryan and I both use Interactive Brokers on a regular basis for our investment accounts. And the reason we love them is because they have the breadth of asset classes and geographical diversification. You can invest in options, bonds, stocks, and in all sorts of markets that you can't find anywhere else, whether it's the Nordics, where we like to research, or down in Latin America, where we also like to research, or in East Asia, you can find stocks that are listed in all these local exchanges, and you can buy them on IBKR, plus so many other features that we've talked about before. If you want to check out IBKR, make sure to go to IBKR.com, member SIPC. If you are a professional investor, if you like doing a lot of research, such as ourselves, which if you listen to our podcast, I think you do, you're going to want to check out IBKR and open and switch your accounts over there today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and I think if you're going to force rank your holdings, it's important to do it on a regular basis because one week it might be ranked a little more poorly than other weeks. You know, maybe there was some news out, maybe the stock jumped a little bit, and your you know your sentiment for that week is kind of uh, maybe it's worsened on a stock. If you and this is something we did that ended up, I think, being beneficial for us is that we ranked it every two weeks. We ranked all our holdings, basically just what we think the best 
risk versus reward is in the in the portfolio for each stock. And the ones that continuously ended up on the lowest of our rankings, first of all, they're in our portfolio. So it's not like we think they're going to perform poorly, but those are the ones that tend to get trimmed, not the one that just showed up being the worst in the most recent week. It was the ones where we continuously thought, ah, maybe the valuation's a little stretched here. Maybe we don't look for the past six months. We've thought that this business is, is there's some problems are showing up. And so I think a force ranking every two weeks is, is a really helpful exercise for it. Like you said. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing is when you consistently have something dropping, I think that's more of an indicator of something is kind of lower on your rankings and sticks there. It might not just be the best idea, but it's still a consistent idea. But if something's dropping in your rankings and we would have times when the same company for probably obvious reasons was dropping in our rankings and we would say, okay, this is probably something we need to invest or investigate. And most likely the best idea was to sell. All right, Ryan, do you want to hit the second one here? Unless you have something yeah, I'll just to finish on. Last thing, and this is probably one of the most important ones to think about is just the taxes. So if you're talking about which one to sell and it's November and you have one that's down 40 or 50%, you can help your tax bill by selling that stock and you're kind of taking a risk here if you want to buy it back in a month, but you're going to have some tax loss harvesting that way to kind of offset your capital gains. So that was also something we did on a number of occasions, especially with Spotify. We decided to cut the position, even though we thought still positively about the company. And we ended up actually a month later getting it back at a very similar price. And we were able to offset our taxes by uh, by a lot. So keep that in mind as well. That's That's maybe a time when it's worth kind of trimming some of your losers. But let's go through these other two questions, which we got from Firm Returns. Once again, thanks, Pharmacy Joe, for the review and the question. Firm Returns sent this to me over DMs. He's been on the show before, and or we've been on his show before. Maybe it was both. The But he asks us uh, two questions. So first one, this is a little more broad, but he says, what are your career slash life goals? I'm going to read the second one and then we can come back to it. Second one is as the converse to your question last week on holding when a stock gets expensive, how long do you wait when a stock remains cheap? So why don't we hit the first one here? What are your, uh, Brett, what are your life goals? What are your career goals? <laughs> yeah, my, that's a, that's always a tough one. I feel like I'm on a date with firm returns here, but the, I mean, right now for career goals is definitely building up the podcast business. We have some goals within that. I don't know if we want to get into the details there, but essentially it's producing what, you know, thank you everyone in the live chat here saying we have a great show. Appreciate all that. And we want to keep doing that in 2024 and beyond. And we also want to grow the audience and we want to build a little advertising business within the podcast. I think that is the number one career goal at the moment. And then life goals, it's pretty standard, you know. <laughs> I don't think we have to get into anything too personal, but I do like traveling around. I think, I guess, maybe to share something personal there. Uh, I do with the, you know, we do this on Zoom. I do uh, writing for the Motley Fool uh, for the other job, kind of the the main job, and I can do that just from my laptop. And as some younger person without a family yet, I just. Kind of want to travel around, so that's that's really it. I I don't know how much I want to share here though. But Ryan, your career goal, I guess, and I think it's always hard to answer these questions. Uh, the career goal, I, I think, is quite similar. Uh, I want the podcast to be in a place where we can, well, fr frankly, generate significant income from it and build a. We've, we're already kind of building this, but build a community around it where it's an easy way to bounce ideas out there. It's kind of like a, a club in a way where it's just, especially now that we don't have the fund and we're not having these structured meetings where we look at our holdings together, it's a way 
to just get my investing thoughts out there and get feedback. So I love having that and hopefully making it bigger over time. Career goal would be that it could be an income stream entirely on its own, like a significant income stream. And then I guess I work for FinChat now. I I have no plans of stopping that anytime soon. I, I actually really, really enjoy working there and it, it they are flexible enough to allow me to do the podcast at the same time. So it so far it's been great. Life goals. Uh, I don't travel quite as much. I would say just have a daily routine that I'm, I'm, I'm happy or I tap dance to work or whatever. I know I work at from home, so it's not a long tap dance, but it's like just something where I actually wake up uh, excited about the, uh, the work itself and feel intellectually stimulated by it. So, um, so far I have that between the podcast and, and the FinChat job. I, I think I've got that. So to do that on maybe a greater scale would be probably long-term life goal. Yeah, but, uh, I think that is, <laughs> yeah, the, I, I, I agree with that one too, is having the freedom and to do whether it's work or in your spare time with your family and friends, just do stuff that you actually enjoy. I think that's a good North Star that we both had. Um, we have a follow-up here. We're talking about building the podcast into a business from James Goodwin, who is uh, also says best investing podcast out there. I think that's what we should put on our tagline. So thank you. Thank you, James, for the kind words. He said, add a premium tier for $10 per month, uh, not an Apple podcast. I will say, yes, don't do that. An Apple podcast, Apple podcast is extremely frustrating and you'll have my money. We did try this actually late last year. We did have some people take it up, but... I don't think we're large enough yet to build out a tier like that where people can support us because we're still trying to grow the audience. And when you add in a premium tier, it makes it harder to grow. But I appreciate the idea. And I know that with these investing type shows, you can have that. And then the other thing with that is we don't want to make this seem like it's some sort of you know, newsletter or premium service that you're just... Uh, subscribing to to get actionable investing advice we like to talk through ideas but we want it to be more of investing entertainment and hopefully spur ideas and conversations with other people but we i think the free route is the best way to go especially because within the investing and finance realm um our audience the listeners you guys are very valuable to advertisers since you guys typically have quite a few you know quite a few bucks out there to spend but yeah, I think that's it. The other I, it, part, it's, it sounds good in theory, but doesn't work as well in practice. Yeah, there are some limitations to it. I mean, first of all, the actual like infrastructure around doing a podcast subscription is not great. So, for example, if you go through the distrib- the distribution platform, let's call it, uh, I think it's Spotify for podcasters now is what we use. It's it's got a pretty intuitive sign up process for Spotify itself, but you have to go and build your own one on Apple. It really gets messy on Overcast, if I'm not mistaken. And there's some other and, channels. And basically everywhere else. And Spotify is only a quarter of our listeners. Right. So it gets messy. And the actual sign-up process is not that intuitive. So I think that probably that friction, people people weren't like, okay, this is something I have to have. So I'm gonna, uh, I'm not going to go through all this friction to sign up. The other part is... When you have less people listening, you only have your subscribers listening, there isn't as much sharing going on, which kind of limits the growth of the podcast and, and it, it less shows up in the organic search and stuff like that. So it, it it's harder to grow once you put that paywall up, but I'll uh, kind of leave it there. I do. We do appreciate the idea. Something we have been thinking about for people like you, James, Tyler, anyone who is Mark USA. 51, who's another person that threw a question in the uh, comments page here. We're thinking about doing some merchandise, whether it's mugs, hats, shirts. So if you really like those, we'll probably do some giveaways as well as maybe have some available for order or something like that. But uh, we'll, we'll try to and encourage yeah. our, we'll try to reward the people that have been listening for a long time by doing that. 
Yep. And it's a great way to growth hack by asking for reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I will say tentative timeline on maybe the first one would be late Q1, early Q2. We have some stuff that we're working on, which you'll be able to hear on the Wednesday episode, kind of the full overview. Uh, but we'll be working on that for the first month or so. So let's get into the second question, Ryan. I'll just read it again. As the converse to your question last week on holding when a stock gets expensive, how long do you wait when a stock remains cheap? I think I have some interesting thoughts here. And it first, it's different for every company. But I think the main thing is, it, this is where management comes into play. Because if a stock remains cheap and you haven't seen anything change with the business, but management is essentially taking the cash that's coming in and for however they're doing it is just wasting it, whether it's buying up, uh, you know, other companies making it, just making poor capital allocation decisions, which when the stock is really cheap, it basically means not buying back shares. But if a stock remains consistently cheap for a multi-year period and the company keeps buying back stock, Eventually, things will work out. We always come back because this is to the Sprouts Farmers Market example. I think Dropbox is another similar one here where it was cheap for a long time. But if the company is consistently generating cash and buying back stock, I don't think there's any problem with holding something that remains cheap for many, many years. The problem is if you're holding something that's cheap, and man, you don't have that management team kind of in your boat with you. It seems, you know, like most of them out there, they're not, they're not thinking of the shareholders uh, except for themselves. Yeah, it's a really good question. So thank you, Firm Returns, for uh, asking it. The way I like to think about it, if you're getting cheap is up to beauty is in the eye of the beholder here which is like you know you can qualify cheap as however you please but the way i think about it is if something trades at let's say a 10 percent or 15 percent free cash flow yield so out of their market cap they are generating 10 to 15 percent of, of it in free cash flow every year that that's cheap to me by the way if they are deploying all of that or 90% of that free cash flow to you in the form of either repurchases or dividends, I'm getting my return there. And it might not, especially with the dividends, it's it's very clear you're easily getting that money back. With the repurchases, it might not show up for a while, but if I can see that that's going to continue for a long time, I really don't care. I'm going to keep continuing to hold it because it feels like I'm getting my return, even though it's not tangible yet so as long as they are returning that capital or doing something that i think is intelligent with it i'm willing to wait for a while it's when like brett said you start to notice that even though their profit numbers are showing up and it looks cheap based on the profit numbers they report if that cash is not getting returned to shareholders in some way or it's not being deployed in what you think is a intelligent manner, then maybe it's not as cheap as you think it is. That's kind of the problem for me. And I think we see that a lot. I think we've even seen that with match group to some extent where they report, they report free cash flow, but it's not the only number to look at because of the stock based compensation. So it, it, maybe they're getting 60 to 70% of their free cash flow in true owners type earnings. That's when yeah, I think you got to be realistic about all the costs that the business has and see what how much of how much cash could be returned to you. And what does management think about that? Do they talk about returning that cash? If a lot of the cash that they generate could be returned or a lot of their market cap could be returned to you, I think it's worth holding as long as management said they, they're going to do it. So I'm willing to wait, like Brett said, depends largely on management. I agree. I don't think there's anything for me to add there. So let's move on to another question. Uh, we got one from Mark. Oh, Ryan. I'll just add one more. 
just because it was cheap when you underwrote it or just because it was cheap when you bought it does not mean it's going to be that cheap forever. If you start to see a decline in earnings or even what you believe is the earnings power of the business, it might get more expensive over time despite the price not moving. So I think it's important to kind of keep updating your expectations for the business as well. That's true. That's true. Okay. Mark USA here. Hey guys, thanks for all the stuff this year. It has been terrific. I appreciate it. And we think we have some great ways to even improve on it in 2024. Can you give a 2023 scorecard to Nelnet? Disappointing for it to be down year to date. Is your confidence still strong going into 2024? Uh, I should say full disclosure, still my largest position. And it probably will remain that unless, as I'm sure the long term listeners know there's three things that matter to me is it cheap uh is the business high quality and is management high integrity i think it remains the same for nelnet the problem is i think in 2023 they are affected by interest rates at least slightly they have some hedges in there on the on the asset management business um which is basically just their student loan book and they definitely face that headwind but i think they got tossed into the bucket of companies that were affected negatively by rapidly raising interest rates. But as we, if we look at their earnings this year, they still generated a profit. And with interest rates, hopefully, um, just plateauing here from the Federal Reserve, I think that headwind will abate. And if we look at the other businesses, student loan servicing, it's fine. I know every there's an article every week of people complaining about it, but... Look, that doesn't mean it's a bad business. It's a solid business that's kind of locked in as their earnings power. The education, technology, or excuse me, education, software, and payments business continues to grow. And I'm sure that's generating lots of cash and they're reinvesting into that. Um, they still have the huddle stake. There is one I'm forgetting, the Nelnet Bank seems to be doing well. Um, I'm forgetting some of the other stuff, but once the annual letter comes out, in February or so. I think they release that right around when they do their Q4 earnings, which will be in February. We'll get an update. They're very frank about how the year went and their long-term plans and what worked and what didn't in 2023, uh, or excuse me, in any year prior. So I'd read that. We'll get an update then, and I'm sure we're going to do an update on the podcast. But Ryan, anything to add? Because I don't think I've changed my opinion much. And I, I think this, frankly, the stock is quite cheap right now. No, I, I'd say maybe I'm a little more, I'm a little less optimistic than I was this time last year, just purely because we haven't gotten that much pillar on the solar business, which is where they're allocating a lot of the cash flow from their loan book. So like Brett said, this is one where they don't give out that much color until the annual letter. So I really hope that they provide some information on that and kind of how that, how that's progressing. The other thing that's important to, I think, remember is that, you know, if you go back and you read the early Berkshire letters, and I'm not saying this is early Berkshire, but when you have a smaller set of businesses, and even today, there are years when the businesses themselves just don't have a good year. Like, I mean, they could be making good capital allocation decisions at the executive level, and those aren't going to bear fruit for a while. But the big operating businesses, they might not be like, they might have a down year. Student loan servicing had a down year because, frankly, they had a lot of employees and that a lot of people weren't paying back their loans because of the moratorium. So hopefully that changes next year. But it, when you go back and you read some of those Berkshire letters, Buffett sometimes would just be like, this business did not perform to expectations and that didn't hurt the long-term returns. They have to make decisions coming out of that, but you just kind of have to be willing to wait and be patient with those situations because these are, I mean, like it's not Google, like there, there are going to be years when they can't grow at will. They have to, you kind of have to wait. You have to wait for that cash flow to come in. You have to wait for uh Dunlap and, uh, what's his name? Nordic to, to kind of deploy it where they see best fit. So, um, yeah, I, I'd say 
not the best year, a little underwhelming. Wish we would have got more context on the solar business and some of the businesses didn't perform as great as I would have thought, but I have no plans to sell anytime soon because I think you really have to look at this with a long-term horizon because that's the same way the management team looks at it. Yeah. And if you're not just talking to Ryan here for anyone that owns it, if you're looking for lots of disclosures and updates, this is the wrong business for you to own. Uh, but I think that's it. We'll probably do more, something more comprehensive once we get the full year numbers, because on the annual letter, that's when they give the most disclosures since they don't do conference calls. But I want to hit one more we got from Twitter this morning. And then I think we have some others in the chat here, but it is. Oh, yeah. I got two of them. Okay. It's from Cardio Capital. Nice little pseudonym there. First one. At present valuations, if you had to, where would you put your next $1 to work? Well, I will say, last week, I did buy something, and it was coupon. Uh, I would go listen to the full podcast we had on that, going over the potentials and whatever. We, you know, we try to be, <laughs> we're not going to pretend we're not very bullish on something, but we do try to go for a full comprehensive thing. We're not just going to say something is a buy, and we we can talk an hour on that, on that podcast that we did back, in, I believe, September or August. But yeah, that's the one that I like the most at the moment. And I think that's the one, as I mentioned earlier, with the personal account, when you get some money coming in, say, every month, as I try to do things like that, that's the one I'm buying for the time being. Yeah, I actually own, as we've kind of been moving money over from the fund to our personal accounts, the I haven't really had... I didn't just do it as like one big buy everything at the same time. We kind of talked about this earlier where I'm buying like individual stocks kind of averaging into them. So bought a big chunk of Nettlenet, bought one of our smaller caps, which I don't really want to talk about. And then bought coupon last week as well when it traded down on the uh, Farfetch news. So bought, bought that one as well. And I think given the, valuation today I, I would probably if i had a new dollar it'd probably go to that same spot so i uh i uh, to answer the question yeah i think coupon would be my first pick uh but there's a lot of options out there i'm seeing tons of questions flood in here so well, this guy had another one, one. Um, okay. i think it'll be easy to ask it's more on the broader watch list type of things what are one to two companies that remain high on your watch list that would be easy additions if valuations were more favorable i have two that come to mind right away. And it's because there are two that I'm frustrated uh, have not remained cheap in December, but they, I think, were extremely cheap in October. And that is American Express and Adyen. I think those are two that remain high on my watch list. American Express is up there for me. I'd say Amazon. That was one that... I've told myself I'm not going to do this anymore, but I'm thinking about just biting the bullet, just inching in at current valuations, even though I don't think it's as attractive as it's been over the last year. But it just feels like such an advantage model. And I constantly think about what are some businesses that have moats that will be bigger in five years? And Amazon's one of the first ones that come to mind. So I, I Amazon would probably that's pretty high on my watch list and I would love for some something terrible some terrible news that people overlook and or people read too much into and we buy it that'd be great yeah that was the start of this year hey you know we took yeah. advantage we took advantage we um but yeah, it would be nice to just continue holding from that price but that's you know not how it works sometimes I will say little teaser for the nice interview discussion we had this week with Justin Ruiz and Brad Lyons from BWG Strategy. We did an hour-plus-long discussion on the changing landscape in advertising technology. And were did it get you more bullish on Amazon's advertising potential? Yeah, just because they have so much first-party data, which is something that uh, our two interviewees talked at length about is the advantage of first-party data as we move into this cookie-less world. So, yeah, it, 
it makes a ton of sense that they would be pretty advantaged in that way. And for some people, it is their search engine, like not search engine, but it's where they do their search queries is directly on Amazon. And we're seeing so many different mediums pop up where they can kind of drive ad revenue that I think they're in a good spot. So I imagine ad revenue will continue to grow. And it's basically, I'm guessing, like 80 or 90% margin. I mean, they got to yeah, pay similar people to, to yeah. build the ad inventory slots. They got to pay pay developers to do that. But on the on the actual Amazon website, I mean, there's pretty much zero incremental cost today to have an advertiser pay for a sponsored listing or a promoted placement yeah. or whatever. Yep. Yep. I agree. I agree. Nothing to add there. All right. What do we want? We hit the Nelnet one. What was the next one? The banking one, right? Want me to just read that off? Yeah. Disclosure. Okay, you go. You read it off. You read it off. Oh, I was also going to say that Tyler says he tried to review the podcast today on Apple. It does take a while to show up, and he didn't have any questions on it, so not a big deal, but appreciate the uh, appreciate the review. He says, what do you guys think banking looks like in five years? Do you think JP Morgan eats all the small branch banks, and the only other banks are neobanks like Ally and Nelnet? I would... Why don't I start by passing this to Brett while I think of my answer? <laughs> I think there is a lot of opportunity. Well, I don't know if there's a lot of opportunity, but I like looking at the banking sector outside of the mega banks because I think there's going to be a bit of a kind of the opposite of here. Or, well, yeah, he mentions, okay, the key here is J.P. Morgan's eats all the small branch banks. So say the physical ones. I don't necessarily think that is going to happen because there is an advantage of being a local bank for for business purposes. But I do think they're going to probably struggle to grow. And I don't have any other hot take about that. But I think the neobanks, look, they're just attracting more deposits. So if they're smart with it, like we think they are over at Ally. Um, SoFi is one that attracts a lot of deposits, but I think it's unclear whether they're being smart with their loans. <laughs> Look, they're attracting deposits, and that's the key starting point to building a banking business. I, I It's a tough one, obviously, because predicting what some industry or sector will look like five years from now is not an easy task, but I think five years from now, the neobanks are bigger. That's the one thing I'd be confident about. The ones that don't have, because branches for individuals are currently have no use. They have no use to me. They have no use to Ryan. They have no use to anyone under the age of 40. And I think that they will continue to grow because they don't have the overhead costs and that is an advantage for them. Yeah, it's... it's the physical branches are becoming less and less important to people. I will say I had to get a cashier's check recently for a property owner who refused to use technology, which was frustrating. But those are situations when it's nice to have a branch that you can easily show up to. I see it being... I see them attracting more deposits, but I don't think the customers will leave the regional banks. So from my situation, for example, I think I'm going to end up using Ally or uh, probably not SoFi, but one of the neo banks that offers you a high savings rate. And I'm going to use it simply just to for the cash I have that I don't think I'm going to need almost as a proxy to bonds. Maybe I'll just end up putting it in like treasuries with the Schwab or something, but the deposits will go out of my regional bank that I use, but I'll remain a customer there. Like I'll always have that if I need, because there are edge cases when it's helpful to have that branch to go to. Same with me with bank of America. I think that's essentially the you could think of those as the same banks in this regards from our just basic checking account perspective. There's no difference. But here's the thing I keep coming back to is I have been saying that for four years. I don't know if I were, will ever actually go through the hassle of transferring the money out, changing which bank income streams go into. Like 
there there is friction and annoyances with switching banks, which when I don't really use it for like earning interest, because I mean the money that's in my bank account, I'm not really thinking about as an investment. The it's almost like why bother? So and I think a lot of the big banks, JP Morgan, Bank of America, that is like it's so there's so much friction to switching that there's just really no point for a lot of people. So or it's just cumbersome and kind of annoying. So I I, I would say well, I, here I, I will I, let me have some pushback there. I, so I, I'm at Bank of America for my first checking account I've had. And it pays very, very low interest. And most of the savings goes to the investment type accounts, which again, used to be personal and the fund, but now it's just going to be the personal account, the Roth IRA. But I was not happy with the interest rate they're paying on that. And I decided to look at the American Express uh, checking account because I remember after researching that company, they were trying to get into this and push that more for whatever their business needs. And I got to say, it took me approximately five minutes to transfer the money over. So, Do you transfer I, it every I, time money comes in? Like every time, does money still go to your Bank of America and then you move it over? Or? Yeah, and it takes, that'll take about 10 seconds. Really? Yeah, oh. and they, they pay a much higher interest rate. This is the only reason it's over there, is they pay a much higher interest rate. Five years from now, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo. Do you think their deposits will be higher or lower than they are today? Uh, higher, higher, just because inflation. Yeah, but I don't, I, I don't know why you buy these though, unless they get it really, really cheap. Because they're just gonna, they're just gonna grow out of the small. Maybe they're safe. I guess they're safe, but they're just gonna grow at a slow rate for a, a long period of time. Yeah. I mean, with JP Morgan, there's the investment banking side that grows quite quickly over time and yeah. it's really well run. The loan book is, seems to be, I think they've done a phenomenal job managing themselves with a lot ever since diamond stepped in. Let's look at a, I would be surprised if they didn't, if they grew low single digits book value per share, I think they've got a good chance to grow high single digits, maybe double digits. Let's, uh, well, I think, why don't we just do a total return versus the S&P? I don't know the answer to this yet, so it's not going to be trying to dunk on Ryan. I could be dunking on myself here. Uh, let's take up JP Morgan. And uh, this is this is total return the max, versus yeah. the S&P? Yeah, I guess we're doing max, yeah, which would be is. back to back to nineteen ninety three. What year do you want to go from? Nineteen ninety three. Diamond took over. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, that's gonna what take. That? How about you answer another question while I research before this the financial take. crisis? I think that was like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was early two thousands. All right. Well, I'm gonna figure that. I'm gonna do the math on this, and then okay, you, let you me take some of these other ones. Yeah. Um. Given the similarity to Sprouts Farmers Market, are you guys interested in Kroger post the Albertsons acquisition? I would say no. I don't think Kroger and Sprouts are really that similar. It to me, something that's valuable about Sprouts is it's pretty niche in the customers they serve, which means it's not gonna it's probably not gonna catch on everywhere. But it's why they're able to have 35% plus gross margins while the Kroger's of the world have 25% gross margins. And a lot of that trickles through to the operating income line. So I think I like Sprouts. I don't know if I like grocery in general, but I do like Sprouts because they are differentiated. They play into the whole diet-specific customer demographic, which is you know the increasing amount of people that have, that are either vegan or vegetarian or have some sort of dietary specification they that seems to be growing that that population seems to be growing and sprouts has been there to really kind of serve that demographic and do so at a significantly higher margin than a lot of other peers so 
I think Sprouts was kind of an edge case. I wouldn't say that I love grocery in general. Yeah, the one thing that's good about grocery is durability. Everyone's got to get food and at the right price, you know, a durable business that generates cash is a pretty easy buy. But yes, I think it's much, much different than Kroger and Albertsons. I would go to, if you live near all of these, go to a Kroger or an Albertsons type store. I'm sure they're they're in every area. So go to one of those, go to a Sprouts, and then go to Trader Joe's and tell me which companies you'd want to own. I mean, seriously, people enjoy going to Trader Joe's and Sprouts Farmer's Market, and it is a terrible experience at a Kroger store. And I think that, look, that's not the end. That's not the end of the world, but Kroger and Albertsons is just not something I'd want to buy. Maybe the merger are, but I don't see why they're going to do well at all. I love this last question from Will Arnold because it it's about something we wanted. I wanted to talk about anyways. You posed a question. Well, first of all, do you have the answer to? Yes, I do, and you're going to like it. Uh, so January 1st, 2006, so pre-GFC, so we're even hitting that there. Total shareholder return, JP Morgan, 587%. S&P 500, 441%. So I'd say pretty good results for a mega cap, sort of, well, I guess large cap at the start there. Can't really expect too much outperformance. Maybe that slight outperformance continues, but I don't think you're going to get much better than that over the next decades, but uh, no reason to sell, I guess. You asked this week via a tweet, what is the best signal you can get that a management team is high quality? Conversely, what is the best signal you can get that they're low quality? And there's a lot of good answers. Most of them basically high quality was around honesty, hitting stating targets and hitting them um being just candid on conference calls the signal thing for high quality is probably the toughest with low quality it's pretty simple they pay attention to shorts if they get paid really well when the business isn't improving um if they i don't know there's a bunch of things for me that are just giant red flags now look at that you see that Okay. Anyway, the uh, uh, what was sorry. I supposed to see? I wasn't even There's, looking. I'm looking at our list of our watch list. I got some Zoom update, and uh, whenever I do a thumbs up on the screen, there's like a bubble that pops up with a thumbs up. Anyway, anyway, okay. And so well, we have Arnold, a question from Will Arnold that re- relates to that, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Who are your personal top five management teams that you've researched? Interested? How management teams you praised before, such as AutoZone, Coupon, Netflix, Adyen, and Airbnb stack up? When I was looking through, what are the kind of like the highest, best signal for a high quality type management team? I could not help but come back to AutoZone. There was something about, and I'm this is a hill I think I'm going to die on. Midwest management teams are better. Yeah. And and other management teams. It's the honesty, the rationality, the like very candid nature that they have that makes me feel like, okay, if there's problems with the business, they're gonna be honest about it. How do they deal with hard questions? There was a question on the AutoZone call, which was like, you, you know, you guys are losing share. What what's going wrong? And he's like, Well, you know, I'm not sure I that's a tough question. I'm not sure that's exactly how I'd put it, but you know, I appreciate it anyways. And it's like, there's times when analysts ask tough questions and the CEO, if it's a bad CEO or one that doesn't want to deal with it, will just shut it down, evade the question and probably not come back to them ever again on conference calls. So I really like the way AutoZone's management team conducts, conducts their business, handles analysts handles tough questions and really just actually cares about the business itself beyond just being a conduit between the company and investors yeah i agree and he said he mentioned the question some of the ones we praised in the past are probably this year even autozone coupon netflix adian airbnb yeah, I think all of those management teams now, some people don't like Airbnb's management because the guy is a bit eccentric, but I think his track record is quite strong. 
and he is honest when things aren't going well for them. And I think that's a good barometer for all of these. They talk pretty frankly about what's working and what's not, and they're going to lay out their long-term plan. They're not going to talk in st- weird, braggadocious, like, I, I, I don't know. It, they just focus on what matters. They talk to investors about what matters. They talk clearly to investors. They're not trying to use fake terms, although coupon isn't adjusted if it's a culprit, but that's okay. The other companies, I would say, I'm rolling through, kind of just have a big file of notes I take on when we do any research, and then there's quite a few <laughs> that are bad. Uh, you know, we got Jumia in here. We got Fubo, Farfetch. Um, First of all, it helps, when, order. it helps when the business Go is good. Because when the yeah. business is good, you don't have as much to lie about. You don't have as much to make up for as an executive. So when you have a truly good business, it's a little easier to be a good executive. The okay. other thing uh, here. American Express was solid. I, I like their new team a lot. Yeah. I, you know, I like executives in the financials area generally. That's kind of a, not all of them, but I found that with the financials companies, they understand the drivers of investments a little better than the uh, some of the tech executives. And maybe it's just because they're dealing with it on a regular basis, especially companies that have an investment banking arm or something like that. But the, the executive or the skill set that are that's required to run a coupon or an Adyen or an Airbnb is different than the kind of executive I'd want running an AutoZone or an O'Reilly's or a Discover or something like that. It, 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 I think you need really, it's, it's a different kind of manager, someone who's like, if you're Airbnb, you need someone who's innovative. AutoZone, you don't really need anyone that's that innovative. You need someone that knows how to take care of their their existing customer and has known the business for a long time. I think it's different types of quality. So it's hard to rank those two against each other because like, I don't think the CEO of AutoZone would do a very good job at the helm of Airbnb and, and vice, versa. vice versa. So, But they can both be very good for their respective businesses. Yeah, I'm rolling through the notes again. Ninja. I think he's good. People don't like him. Uh, Ryanair, uh, I think, is quite high quality. Let's see. Quite a few bad ones. Sprouts Farmer's Market, I think, is high quality as well. Uh, wow. What if, I mean, you can see why we get frustrated because a lot of these management teams... I mean, my gosh. Well, one of the, I mean, a lot of the management teams. There's six that I like. (laughs) A lot of the management teams are not like they aren't significant shareholders. Maybe they are in some ways, but typically it's probably through gifting of options and it's earned based on metrics that don't matter. So one of the, best ways to alleviate situations like that is just to have someone who owns a big chunk of stock and that's fair yeah you know it's hard to find those situations but coupon is a great example of this where bomb soup kim even though they do the adjusted EBITDA stuff it, it doesn't matter to him and he knows that because he owns 75 percent of i think it's like 75 percent of the stock where all he cares about is the long term, and they make investments today that are going to bear fruit way down the road because they, you know, that's what's going to ultimately matter to him. So, obviously, yeah, if you can find a, if you can find a owner operator, that's kind of the ideal situation. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay, we got another question. Maybe we got a couple minutes. This could be a fun one to end on because it's the macro. It's. <laughs> Always fun to talk about uh, from fake a- alias here. End of 2023 run mostly based on anticipated rate cuts. So I think he's talking about this December rally. And then his question is, thoughts on if inflation just hovers over 2.5% for an extended period and cuts just stay the same, 
for most of 2024. I'd maybe ask for a follow-up here because I think you're saying that interest rates stay flat and don't come down. After the cuts, I think is what he's trying to say. Like uh, after the cuts that they've said they're going to make. To like 4% or 3.5. Yeah. Do the interest rates not change? In that scenario, I think housing prices, uh, housing is not a good investment. I think like it stagnates kind of on a real basis, right? They might go up nominally. That would be my take because it, okay, he says it rates. No matter what happens to rates, no matter what happens to rates, no, that thanks housing is screwed. Well, no, if they go to zero, it'll probably be a good investment again. But I mean, the math still won't work there for a lot of people from an affordability perspective. And I think on a real basis, which we've seen because on a real basis, housing prices are down. The um, it's just gonna like people are gonna start. There's gonna be a normalization in buying and selling. And unless we get a lot of immigration, it's just not really going to work unless interest rates go down a lot because of the leverage in, in housing. Obviously, certain areas, certain areas will do well, as always. But on a whole, I think it would just make it really, really tough. And I'll be interested to know about that. But I think the financials do well in this scenario. Some financials. And I, but a lot of I that, agree. I think, is priced in. Yeah, it feels like a lot of that has been priced in over the last month. I'd say that if if we don't get further rate cuts in 2024, I imagine that the NASDAQ will not perform great. It feels like a lot of those have traded up based on the assumption that rate cuts will continue as of late. So all in all, I think yeah. it, it would it would not do so well. Yeah, I will say these are impossible questions that we Everyone almost always gets wrong, and you should not listen to economists because while they're smart people, we would do just as bad as them. It's just an impossible job (laughs) to have. The yeah, the only thing is, would you rather own? I think you're meeting some of the smaller NASDAQ companies, but would you rather own Amazon and Google or in a high interest rate environment? Or would you rather own companies with really low quality balance sheets? Because I want to avoid if interest rates stay high, you want really to quality. avoid the the number the number one thing is to avoid companies whose balance sheets are were not great in low interest rate environments and are going to have to refinance because a lot of that's going to come due over the next couple of years and the refinancing is going to be huge for some of these companies. I think cruise lines specifically that kept me f- I and mean, that's not a good business in general, but yeah, there's a lot. Like, I mean, I think the commercial real estate gets really rough. But again, these are all speculations and not how I invest. I look for a couple of companies that I think uh, uh, have any sort of advantage in. But Ryan, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it was a leading question. I, I don't, I'm not sure it's ever the best time to invest in the companies with really low quality balance sheets. But the uh, true, true. I don't know. I mean, it. it if you look at the Nasdaq today, it's more. The bulk of it is Apple, Microsoft, Microsoft, and almost Tesla and Nvidia now. Still, right? They outweigh yeah. Meta, yeah. Google, and Amazon. <laughs> I have, yeah, I know. I like them. those ones. Still seem fairly cheap. I get what you mean. Are you going to get better returns if, say, ten-year Treasury goes back to five percent? Would you get better returns? Owning that, the low or quality big tech sheets. at 30, 30, 50, 30 to 35 times earnings. Yeah. The reason I say this is that the low quality balance sheets, if, if inflation is high, interest rates are high, yes, you probably want the companies that are going to weather it no matter what. However, I think the stock prices have reflected that now, where yeah. the low quality balance sheets that survive are going to give you better returns, most likely in a shorter yeah. time frame. So, that's why I say it seems like a lot of these have the prices have now just reflected that rate cuts are going to be this like consistent thing. I don't know. I really hate talking about rates and it feels like we've been doing it nonstop for the last year. <laughs> well, people, people, people ask about it. Yeah. I think we're there. We're, we're better than most shows where we talk about maybe for a little bit, but it's a little, just a little tease at the end. And I will say you mentioned that a lot of that has been priced in. 
but the low the perceived low quality balance sheets that are perceived going to be in trouble but you think aren't is where the opportunity might lie and that's i'll say why i liked why we liked ally financial in the spring and the summer all right that's a good example there i think that's 61 minutes all right well let's get uh through the disclosure here thank you i guess everyone who asked questions i think it was a good end of year show we're going to do our 2024 launch show i i don't know what we're going to call it we'll come up with a fun title always got to get you know a little tease there for the listeners but let's hit the disclosure we are not financial advisors anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation ryan i and any podcast guests may own securities discussed in this podcast may have owned them in the past and may buy sell or hold them in the future if you like the show Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That is the best way to help us grow. And if you like it as well, tell someone about it, share it, share it with somebody you think would like this podcast. All right. Thank you, everyone, for all the questions, and we'll see you next week.